Malachi chapter 1, we begin reading in verse number 6. It reads, A son honoreth his father, and a servant his master. If then I be a father, where is mine honor? If I be a master, where is my fear? Saith the Lord of hosts unto you, O priests that despise my name. And ye say, Wherein have we despised thy name? Ye offer polluted bread upon mine altar, and ye say, Wherein have we polluted thee? In that ye say, This table of the Lord is contemptible. And if ye offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And if ye offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it now unto thy governor. Will he be pleased with thee, or accept thy person, saith the Lord of hosts? And now, I pray you, beseech God that he will be gracious unto us. This hath been by your means. Will he regard your persons, saith the Lord of hosts? Who is there even among you that would shut the doors for naught? Neither do ye kindle fire on mine altar for naught. I have no pleasure in you, saith the Lord of hosts. Neither will I accept an offering at your hand. For from the rising of the sun, even to the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. And in every place incense shall be offered unto my name, and a pure offering. For my name shall be great among the heathen, saith the Lord of hosts. But ye have profaned it, in that ye say the table of the Lord is polluted, and the fruit thereof, even his meat, is contemptible. Ye said also, Behold, what a weariness it is. And ye have snuffed at it, saith the Lord of hosts, and ye brought that which was torn, and the lame, and the sick. Thus ye brought an offering. Should I accept this of your hand, saith the Lord? But cursed be the deceiver, which hath in his flock a male, and voweth, and sacrificeth unto the Lord a corrupt thing. For I am a great king, saith the Lord of hosts, and my name is dreadful among the heathen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, God, I come before you this evening. I pray that you would uh, help me, dear God, to preach your word, dear Lord. I pray that I wouldn't preach to uh, make something of myself, to make a name for myself, or to make anyone here think I'm something that I'm not, dear God. But, Lord, I pray that you'd help me to preach your word and nothing but your word, Lord. Lord, I pray that you'd feed them uh, through this word, dear God, for for I cannot. Lord, I pray that you'd help us in these few moments to uh, worship, serve you, dear God, and these things to ask in your name. Amen. I'm going to set a timer here because I don't want to keep you uh, very long. I'll preach at least ten minutes. Um, we'll look here uh, for a few moments. I want to preach or have you ask yourself this question. What's on your altar? So we look here in Malachi. We'll begin. We'll just go down these verses here. Verse six begins. A son honoreth his father and a servant his master. If I then if I if then I be a father, where is my honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear? So first off, we see that God is worthy of honor. That, that, that's a correct statement. We, we see that God is worthy of honor. We see that in the beginning of the Bible when he creates reality within a single verse. Within a single sentence, God creates reality. He allows everything around us to be as it is. So we see that he's worthy of honor for that. He's worthy of honor because he gave us his word. We see we, a God that just exists but doesn't exist within us is nothing that we should actually have any relative thought about because we wouldn't know about him if he didn't interact with us we wouldn't know who he was we see that he deserves honor because he didn't just create us and leave us to be whatever reality took us to he didn't let us uh be just formless matter or anything of that nature but he continued to form us he continued to uh talk to us to uh, mold us into what he wanted us to be we see that he also was worthy of honor because he showed mercy he sent his son to bear our iniquities not only did he create us not only did he guide us but when we messed up he stepped in and pro- uh, provided a propitiation for our sins as well so we see that he is well worthy of honor we also see that he's worthy of fear or reverence if you will 
We see the judgment throughout this chapter, but also through the Bible. We see that God brings judgment. We see that judgment is promised even within the future of our time. Judgment is promised. Judgment is promised against those who go against God, who perform wicked acts, who uh, choose to reject God. We also see that he's all-powerful. We know that without uh, being all-powerful, he could not make reality. He could not do what was done in Genesis. So we see he's worthy of fear and reverence because he's, he's going to bring judgment. He's all-powerful. He's holy and righteous. If he is worthy of honor, if he is worthy of fear or reverence, then because he's an eternal God, it comes to reason that he is worthy of this all the time. An eternal God is worthy of honor and fear and reverence eternally. That just makes sense. So this also begs the question, why do we, as Christians, why do we despise his name or live as if we despise his name? We see this in uh, verse six. He says, oh, priests that despise my name. The logical response to this would be say, I'm not a priest. But we see through the Bible that we are, in fact, a priest. Isaiah 61, six says, ye shall be named the priests of the Lord, speaking of the new covenant. Romans 12.1 tells us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Well, that's a picture to the Levites who offered themselves as a living sacrifice. They don't kill themselves, but they offer themselves to be in perpetual service to God. And here Paul in Romans 12 is telling us to do the exact same thing. First Peter 2.5, he tells us to uh, that we are built up a holy priesthood. God has built us up to be a holy priesthood. Revelation 1.6 tells us that he has made us kings and priests unto himself. So if we are saved, if we've been born again, we've been made to be priests. So this is obviously talking to us in the context because we are also priests. But you may also ask, how have we despised the name of God? In our offerings, what's on our altar. So we'll go ahead and get started now. Introduction. So it only took three and a half minutes is not not bad. So first, we're going to look at some unacceptable offerings, some unacceptable offerings. Verse seven of the first chapter of Malachi reads, "Ye offer polluted bread upon mine altar. And you say, wherein have we polluted thee in that you say the table of the Lord is contemptible. So first unacceptable offering I see is a soured offering a polluted offering so whenever malachi is writing this he knows that his audience's mind is going to go back to leviticus chapter 2 and verse 11 of course they didn't have chapters but you get the point they would have went back to leviticus when it tells them not to offer leaven upon the altar not to burn leaven leaven is a picture of wickedness within the bible it's a picture of the gentiles as well but in this regard is a picture of wickedness which is of course contrary to who god is contrary to what god is so we see that he's telling them they're offering these false things are offering things out of the world. And so we can take this and look at ourselves and, and see if we think or if we are living as this world is. Some think that they can live two lives and still give themselves fully to God, but that doesn't work. Sometimes I, I'm just going to preach to myself. And if the Holy Ghost preaches to you, that's that's the Holy Ghost and not me. Sometimes I think that I can give part of my life to God, but keep the other part to myself. But that's not what God asks for. God, uh, Jesus tells us to forsake all and to follow him, to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. He didn't say you can let it go every once in a while so that you can do what you enjoy doing, so that you can have your leisure time. And I'm not saying there's anything bad with leisure, but I'm saying if leisure comes over God, then it's no longer just leisure, it's sin. So we can't live two separate lives. We, we, when we do that, we offer leaven in our offering and it stinks to God. God talks about how false offerings in Leviticus uh, 
create a stench in his nostrils. And that's what we do when we try to live two lives and still give ourselves uh, fully to God. We know there's no communion between light and darkness. And yet oftentimes we try to mix the two. You can't mix light and darkness. Light eschews darkness. It gets rid of darkness. There's no possible way for them to dwell together. <clears throat> but I said all that. That's not what the context of this verse is. That's not what Malachi's talking about. I just wanted to say it because why not? <clears throat> The priests held the altar in contempt because they had to give up things. We see that when it says, uh, last part of verse 7, in that you say, the table of the Lord is contemptible. So it's not just talking about offering things that are worldly. It's talking about holding the altar in contempt. They had to give up some things. They had to let go of some things. When we look at the life of Abraham, he couldn't get back to where he needed to be with God until he let go of some things. Until he let go of Lot, he couldn't have communion with God. Whole other message, not going to get on that. But the altar is a picture of sacrifice. And we're often loath to give up things for God. I'm often loath to give up my time, to give up my friends, my friend's time, or anything like that, to serve God. And yet we, we think that God, we're some great Christian when we do one prayer a week, or if we pray for five minutes every day, and that's it. And that's all we give God. Is that is that actually what God wants? Does God just want five minutes out of your day? Does God actually want 35 minutes out of your week? Is that actually what God wants? God who gave himself for us is all he asks 35 minutes a week. No, God wants our life. He doesn't just want part of it. He wants all of it. And that's not that's not me trying to be a hard preacher. That's just what the Bible says. The Bible says to go fully after God. <clears throat> We can't hold on to our sin and worship God. We can't love the world and the things therein and try to love God. And whenever we do that, we live as if God is worthy of some things, but not all. We act as if God is not worthy of all of our life. God's not worthy of all of our time. So we see first of the unacceptable offerings. We see the sour. Then I see the sightless. Verse 8, the first part of verse 8 here. It reads, and if you offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? Now, to be without sight is a picture of ignorance. That is, not knowing what you do. That is, uh, not knowing what's around you. That means to live in the unknown. At one point, that's how we were. At one point, God winked at our ignorance. That's Acts 17.30 when Paul's preaching there. At one point, it was understandable. We had not come to the knowledge of the truth. We didn't know what we were doing. But that point has passed. If you know that you're lost or if you've been saved, the point of ignorance has passed. The point of just going about life whatever that's past so we see that we begin as babes in christ but now we've grown and since we're grown there is no excuse to abstain from sacrifice romans 120 when when he's ta- when paul's talking to sinners about them not being with an excuse of why they're not saved the same thing applies to us we have no excuse for not doing right God's giving us his word. God's given us his son. God's given us his spirit on this earth. There is no excuse for us not to do right. The, the only thing that comes through our way is us. It's not God's fault. It's not because God's not illuminated us. We've been illuminated. We've had the glorious light of the gospel shine into our lives. Like Paul on the road to Damascus, we've had that experience with Christ. If we've been saved, if we've been delivered the gospel, we've had that experience. We're no longer uh, held unaccountable for the things that we've done. So we're also to know how to do these things properly. We're to know how to serve God properly. We can't just do something and say, well, I hope he likes this. Tie a little bow on it and say, well, I really hope he appreciates this. No, God has given us exactly what he wants us to do. It's a personal relationship. It's to be with him personally. 
So I see we the unacceptable offerings. I've gone a lot faster than I thought, which is good for you guys. <laughs> unacceptable offerings. I see there's a soured, there's a sightless, and then there's a sick. Last part of uh, chapter 8, uh, verse 8 rather. It says, and if ye offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it now unto thy governor. Will he be pleased with thee or accept thy person, saith the Lord of hosts. Something that is sick or lame is not functioning at full capacity. How often do we go about life half-hearted in what we do for God? Like I said, I'm going to, I'm going to preach myself. We have an evangelism ministry at UT, and sometimes I go out saying, I really hope no one actually says, yeah, I don't mind talking to you. There are times when I go out and I'm like, I just really hope everyone's really mean today so I can just go back and, you know, read or something. But that's not what Christ wants. That's not the right spirit at all. That's not the right offering that we're to offer. We're to offer everything we have. We're to offer it at our full capacity with everything within us. That's what Paul tells us to do, to do it fully, to do it wholly, heartily, he says. And the question would be, is God only worthy of our second thoughts? Is God worthy of just, well, I have enough time now after I've done this, this, and this. So I guess I'll pray, or I guess I'll read my Bible, or I guess I'll hand out a tract, or I guess I'll talk to somebody on the street about Christ. That's not what God asks for. God, throughout Leviticus, throughout the whole Bible, asks for our first fruits. The first fruits of our time, the first fruits of our effort. He asks for the first of everything we have. It's not about second thoughts. It's about a primary personal relationship with God. And we see Paul says to live is Christ. That means that Christ was... That's what his life was. How much of our life is actually about Christ? He said that his whole life, everything about it, every small detail about his life was dedicated to God's son. How much of our life is dedicated to him? So we see these unacceptable offerings. We see the soured. We see uh, the sightless and we see the sick. Now let's look at some unacceptable attitudes. First, I see a heretical or a profaned attitude in verse 12. But ye have profaned it. Going back a little verse, it says, For my name shall be great among the heathen, saith the Lord of hosts. Some, and I'm not exactly preaching to you here, but if it applies, it applies. Some do good works, but don't hold to the power of God. Don't hold to the name of God. They think that their good works will get them somewhere. Well, your good works will just get you to hell. I mean, to put it blatantly. Your good works don't save you. That's evident throughout the Bible. It's God's grace. It's faith in Christ. But we see there's still some who believe that doing good things will get them there. But they don't believe in the God behind what actually is good. They can say what a good thing is, but they can't explain the goodness behind it. They try to make themselves gods by deciding what's right. That's essentially what it is. Those who try to do good and say, well, I'm all right because I'm doing what's right. You're making yourself a god. You're justifying yourself in your own eyes. Like I said, I'm not exactly preaching towards you, but if the shoe fits. Some offer gifts that pervert the truth. We see two kind of schools of thought in this realm. We see legalism and liberalism. We see those who try to do this, this, and this if they can be right, and liberalism say, whatever I do, it doesn't matter, I'm accepted. Now this is a little more towards Christians because um, whenever you do this, and we all tend to, at least me, gravitate towards one or the other. Sometimes I'm like, I have to do this, this, and this, or God's not going to love me, and he's not going to love you either. And sometimes I'm like, I'm just living life. It's just whatever, you know, I can just go about it. But we see that this is not the right attitude, because uh, Malachi chapter 2 and verse 8 says, But ye are departed out of the way, so here we see a divergence from the path of God. 
but ye are departed out of the way, ye have caused many to stumble at the law. It didn't just say yourself. It didn't just say you. It said many. Caused many to stumble at the law. You've corrupted the covenant of Levi, saith the Lord. We see that our actions have consequences, not just to ourselves, but to others. Of course, you've been preached that all of your lives. And yet we go through life just like, oh, this only affects me. I can do what I want because it's just going to affect me. I can deal with the consequences. But we look at the life of David, for example, who chose his pride over God's word. And he might have thought that if anything bad happened, it would just be to himself. I mean, he went through a lot at this point, so he's like, I could probably handle it. But we see that his sons, his daughters, his wife, his kingdom in general suffered from his mistakes, suffered from his choosing to go blatantly against God. So we see our actions have consequences and choosing to be a legalist, choosing to be a liberal in terms of the things of God also has a consequence. You're giving a perverted picture of who Christ is. See, there's a very big difference between just being quiet and being perverted about it. See, this one's way worse. If, if you don't have anything good to say, don't say it. I mean, that applies here, too. If you don't have anything good to say about Jesus, just don't say anything being a Christian. But if you do, you're giving a perverted picture. There's a real reason. There's a real problem, I should say, with people who say they're Christian, who think they're Christian, who don't know Christ at all. And it's of no, it's not exactly of their fault. It's because people gave a perverted picture of Christ. Gave a false picture of Christ and they bought into that. They bought into that because they want to believe in something. Mankind just inherently wants to believe in something. It is our job as Christians to give them the true thing to believe in. Truth to believe in. But we see the unacceptable attitudes. We see heretical and then we see a heavy attitude, a wearied attitude in the first part of verse 13. It says, ye said also, behold, what a weariness is it. Some are weird, we talked about this a little bit earlier, of sacrifice because of their pride and their greed. Uh, we see this in the life of Hophni and Phinehas in 1 Samuel, the first uh, few chapters of 1 Samuel, where they had plenty. They, they were priests unto God. They had their, uh, 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 <laughs> I can't think of the word, their home. I was going to think of a smarter word because I'm <laughs> pretentious. Um, but they had a home to stay in. They had whatever they wanted, and yet they robbed the people, causing them to hate God, going back to the perverted uh, picture of who God is, of who Christ is. But they robbed the people of their offerings because uh, the verse says they wanted to make themselves fat with abundance of goods. They just wanted more. How much, how much do you really have? I, I don't have much. I mean, I'm a college student. I don't have much. So when I look at my life through all the years, and even right now, I can say that I'm rich. I'm rich with, I'm rich in love, rich in grace. The grace and love that God has bestowed upon me is uncountable. It's insurmountable, the love that He's given me, the grace He's given me. I'm rich with Christ. Are we not rich? What more could we possibly want? Why do we keep going to the world when God has given us everything? God has given us anything we could possibly want or need. I find myself often when I count my blessings being like the men whenever the 5,000 or 4,000 were dead having fragments left over. Whenever I'm like, oh, I could utilize this blessing that God's given me, but there's still this. There's still this that I don't even have time to use. I've been abundantly blessed, and yet oftentimes I look at the world and say, I could really use that. I mean, why not? That's just more for me. And that's our, that's our mindset behind it. It's an attitude that God despises, a stench in the nostrils of God. And then we have another uh, wearied look about this. We have in Amos chapter... Uh, Where'd I go? 8, verse 5. It reads, Hear this, O ye that swallow up the needy, even to make the poor of the land to fail, 
saying, notice this, when will the new moon be gone that we may sell corn? And the Sabbath that we may set forth wheat, making the ephah small and the shekel great and falsifying the balance by deceit. So we see right here that these men were like, I, this, this, this stuff that we're doing for God's great and all, but really, when's it going to be over? I'm ready to get back to where I was before, ready to get back to my old things, ready to get back to, you know, fishing or hunting or whatever. I can say that. I know I don't look like a hunter or a fisher, but I, I do do those things, I promise. <clears throat> but oftentimes we say, I'm ready, just go in. If the preacher preaches longer than 30 minutes, then I'm going to have a bad rest of the evening, bad rest of the day. If I have to go to church more than twice a day or more than once a day, then I'm going to have a bad rest of the week. When is it going to occur to us that God wants our all? I've said it a lot because I really want to drive it in our heads because I need it driven into my head. When are we going to realize that God wants our all, our first fruits, our best, our very best? When are we going to realize that it's not about checking off a box? It's not about, oh, I'm doing my morning prayer, doing my daily reading activity, and maybe talking to a Christian or a sinner about God. It's about giving everything we have. God wants love. He doesn't want a box checked off. He doesn't want a list made and then having everything, every little dot checked off. He wants a personal relationship. I see whenever I want to do something for my father, I don't just say, all right, I've done this and it's enough. I want him to be overwhelmed by everything I'm doing to him. He has to tell me to stop, really. But I want to give him my all. And if I want to give my worldly father my all to show him how much I love him, how much more should we be giving to God? But we also see as a Christian we should have a desire to do good, which makes it a little more heavy when we think about it, because whenever we're heavy to do something, it's because we've chosen to be heavy about it. God's given us a desire. God has given us a new man to indwell within us. And yet we have to go constantly against it. Of course, we know we battle through the flesh. Whenever we mess up, it's because we're favoring. God says that he's not uh, given us a temptation that's uncommon to man. He's not given us a temptation that we can't overcome. It's whenever we favor the outer man over the inner man. When we favor the old man, who's a corpse, by the way, instead of the new man, which has been made alive. That's what happens whenever we are heavied or wearied about these things. We've been favoring the old man, that corpse, over and over again. So I see, in terms of unacceptable attitudes, we see the heretical, we see the heavied, and then we see the heedless, the last part of verse 13. I'm almost done, I promise. I've only been preaching 20 minutes. We're good. We're good. So we see the heedless, last part of uh, verse 13. We'll go ahead and read the whole verse. He said, also, behold, what a weirdness is it. And ye have snuffed at it, said the Lord of hosts. And ye brought that which was torn, and the lame, and the sick. Thus ye brought an offering. Should I accept this of your hand, saith the Lord? So we see the heedless, or the snuffed at. Some don't regard God or his commands any longer. It's just to the point where they, they've ignored God so much that a voice doesn't even speak to them. I, I, I'll speak from experience here. I was in a place where I shouldn't have been uh, about a month ago. And I kept just ignoring God, just ignoring him over and over again. I could I could actually feel my heart getting heavier and heavier, being reluctant to hear the voice of God. I, I realized that whenever I uh, heard of people dying who I knew were lost, it didn't touch me like it did before. When I read the scriptures, I knew that God wasn't speaking to me through them like he was before. We see that there are oftentimes these periods in our life where we keep rejecting and rejecting the word of God until it's just we can't hear him anymore. We're heedless. We've snuffed at him so much that his voice cannot even penetrate our stony hearts. And we see that there is a loss of growth and comfort through this. Hosea chapter 4 and verses 9 through 10, it says, And there shall be like people, like priests, 
and I will punish them for their ways and reward them their doings. For they shall eat and not have enough. They shall commit whoredom and shall not increase because they have left off to take heed to the Lord. We see there is no comfort and there is no growth, metaphorically speaking, from this verse. We see there is no increase because they have continued to go against God. Whenever we continue to ignore God, we have this unacceptable attitude of just snuffing at the things of God, saying, really, again, I have to go to church again. I have to witness to these people again. We see that eventually it gets to the point where we don't have any growth, no Christian growth. We can't grow without God. That doesn't make sense. Any kind of growth would be cancerous at that point. We also see that we don't have any comfort. We can't find comfort because he's the God of peace. He is peace in of itself. And we cannot find peace if we're not having a walk with him. We also see that there is eventually destruction in this. Uh, Psalms chapter 28 verse 5 says, Because they regard not the works of the Lord, nor the operation of his hands, he shall destroy them and not build them up. So we've seen the uh, unacceptable offerings, the unacceptable attitudes. But I don't want to leave on a, on a bad note because we know that we're not appointed unto wrath. So I want to do uh, one final point and look at his undeniable love. If you want to, turn to the book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 10 and verse uh, 15. So we're looking at his undeniable love. We know we are promised better things than an assured destruction. We know that he has better things than wrath in store for us. So let's look at this love that he has for us because we're deserving of that wrath. We're deserving of that destruction that we've mentioned earlier. But let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 15, if I get my notes straight. <clears throat> verse 15, it says, I speak as to wise men, judge ye what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread and one body. For we are all partakers of that one bread. We'll stop right there and just go over these verses real quick. So first off, just a little background. Paul's telling these people that even though they're different, they've come together in Christ. They've been partakers of Jesus is what brought them together. It wasn't any sort of racial, cultural, ethnical bond. It it was all because of Christ. That's what brought them together. It was Christ that brought them together. They were partakers of Christ. But then notice verse 18, which is really where I want to leave off. Behold Israel after the flesh. Are not they which eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? So we see, let's look at it in our, in our sense. In a new covenant, Gentile have been saved uh, by the grace of God. Let's look at that and how it applies to us. So we have eaten of the sacrifice. We see that in verse 16 where we have partaken of the blood and body of Jesus Christ when we asked him to save us. We've partaken of his blood and body, which is a miracle in of itself that we were even allowed to do that, being Gentiles, being outside of the promises of God. But we see that we've partaken of Jesus. But we also see in verse 18, they which eat of the sacrifices are partakers of the altar. That is the place of his sacrifice. And that necessitates the question, what exactly of Calvary are we partakers of? Is it the pain? Well, I can tell you one thing. I have no wounds in my hands. There are no holes in my feet, nor nor a gash in my side. I have no scars around my brow from Jerusalem thorns. It's not the pain of Calvary that we're partakers of. Is it the shame of Calvary that we're partakers of? No, it's not the shame. He was God, and he came down from heaven, dwelt among man, wrapped himself in the flesh of a man, was despised of his own. His own received him not. 
and died a vicarious death, died for every man. So I have not suffered shame like that. Nowhere near comparable to that. So what exactly is it? What exactly is it that we have partaken in the place of Calvary? Well, Galatians tells us this. I know I'm making you go everywhere. But Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7 says, Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be Lord of all, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. And in Galatians three thirteen through 14 Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is every man that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. It's not the pain, it's not the shame, but it's the redemption. The redemption of Calvary is what we partake of. That's what we partake of in terms of the place of the altar, of his sacrifice. We have been redeemed. A purchase was made on Calvary, one that everyone can partake in freely. I know it didn't cost me anything. I don't know if you... I don't know if it cost you anything, but it didn't cost me anything. His blood was freely applied. It was a vicarious death, so it was for everyone. It was for me. It was for you, for all of us who have been saved. He died for us. Not that we, so we didn't have to suffer the pain or the shame or anything like that, but we got to experience the redemption, the redemption of sons, crying, Abba, Father, receiving a heavenly Father, something that we couldn't get on our own, something that we weren't a part of, Gentiles, outside of the promises of God, outside of the protection of God. And yet now we are sons with God. Everything was on his altar. Let's notice that real quick. Everything that God had, he put on his altar. Why can't we do the same? He gave his all. Everything was right there. We have no excuse for neglect now. Remember his love. Remember what he gave. Remember that. And check what's on your altar. Well, that's the question, isn't it? What's on your altar? Not what's on your neighbor's altar, what's on your altar. Uh, Not what used to be on your altar, but what's on your altar tonight. Can you say 100% man that I'm all on the altar? There's no part of my life that I've held back from God, no part of my life that I am, am laying claim to, but I've given it all to him, every bit of it. If you can't say that tonight, man, tonight would be a perfect time to come and lay that on the altar. It's not about this physical space. But it's about spiritually coming to the Lord and saying, now, Lord, I want to give you everything in my life. I want you to take it and let it be yours. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in his name.